Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Meltzer Five Star Project, an ongoing series where myself, Lorcan Mulling, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-hosts, Simon Cross, discuss matches that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. We are covering a match that we did say we might, we thought there was a chance we might be covering, but at the time, given what we'd heard from Meltzer's initial reaction, it didn't seem like he was going to give the full perfect score to this match as he did the initial match because it's a rematch from another match from 2022 that we're covering. Simon, what match to match to match match are we talking about today? We are talking about a match that took place at Ring of Honor's Death Before Dishonor pay-per-view. It is a rematch, as my esteemed colleague mentions, for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Championships and it is FTR defending against the Briscoes in a Briscoe specialty style match, two out of three falls. So I think it seems to be as close to a consensus at the moment that the first FTR Briscoes match at Supercard of Honor yep. during WrestleMania weekend is the front runner as it stands in the match of the year stakes. Would that be a fair? assumption or are there other matches i'm forgetting that would also be right up there in the running i think for different reasons cody seth gets talked about a lot but for ve- they're very it's a different vibe a very different vibe but i can't think of anything else so obviously this match coming in had a weight of expectation put upon it and adding the two out of three full stipulation changed the dynamic quite significantly Because whether this is a better match or a worse match than the first one, we'll get into, and that's always a matter of personal taste. What it is, is a different match to the first one. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, like there's, there's more respect going on for most of the match between the two teams. They, they recognize the danger that the other team poses now. And so there's a wariness as the match starts and there's a wariness as it goes on because they're being hit with moves that they've felt before. You know, it was all theoretical up until the first match where they suddenly realised how hard the other team hits. Yeah. And it was also funny with the first match that I remember one of the things I was pointing out was it did seem to be anchored by the animosity more explicitly between Dax Harwood for FTR and Jay Briscoe for the Briscoes. Mm. Whilst I wouldn't say that then the main rivalry in the second match is between Mark and Dash, it does feel more like Mark and Dash are a more active participant in the in whatever intensity the match has. Yeah. As you say, the hatred's not necessarily there anymore. But there is anger. And there's also a shift in power dynamics as well. Especially in the first fall, essentially, for the most part. Where the Briscoes are definitely more the aggressors this time. Because they're the challengers. Mm. Whilst in the previous one, it was FTR that were essentially going into away territory. Yeah. And trying to put another notch on their belt. And also continue their 
ascension over the course of that year that, that was being built up. I mean, you know, if you to make a case for who are the... If you allow tag teams and singles to be taken into consideration, then you could make a case for FTR being the wrestlers of the year so far this year. Quite possibly. So that level of expectation is upon them going into this match. They're the ones that everyone's gunning for. In this case, it's the Briscoes because... They're walking around with three different championship belts each at the moment. With mm, mm. the AAA, the Ring of Honor, and now since and the this, IWGP. The acquired IWGP Heavyweight Tag Team Championships. Now, given how AAAR treat their championship belts, and given how New Japan treat their tag team division, it's maybe not quite as prestigious as it would initially sound. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they're in any rush to get the FDR to come to Japan to defend their belts. But it's more the visual and it representing the hard work that these guys have gone through this year. And I suppose it also does seem like it's the constant build up to the payoff, which we thought when the Young Bucks won the tag team titles in the ladder match against Jurassic Express was going to be a winner take all match between them and the Young Bucks that would lead to one team walking around with four championship belts each. Yeah. And then it turned out that that wasn't really the plan anyway and until the departure of the hardies apparently they were the team that was supposed to win the tag team titles Mm. and now none of those people involved are a part of the tag team title scene now as it's now moved on to swerving our glory and there doesn't seem to be any attempt to set up any kind of interaction even let alone rivalry between them and ftr no no uh well obviously the trios titles have now been announced and the young books are currently courting a uh, a third partner it seems it seems that's their storyline at the moment i was wondering who would be the best guy to have as if ftr were involved in the trios tournament because cm punk's on the shelf who would you book you know i book just for a quick little spot go on get johnny gargano in oh that'd be yeah it's like can we trust him <laughs> mm. i was thinking of a dream a trio to involve in the tournament as well if we keep the cross-promotional thing going on like in this match in theory because uh, I said I want to see uh, Team Venn Diagram is one way of describing them which would be Alex mm. Shelley teaming up with both Chris Sabin and Kushida and I've even got the team name for them which is Time Machine Guns yeah yeah I like that but that's for another theoretical episode in the future but we're talking about the here and well not the here and now we're talking about about a week ago what's curious as well with this being a ring of honor and i think the, the commentators mentioned this as well whilst it's a ring of honor show it's essentially now an aew crowd yeah and it's a mostly aew presentation the arena's bigger the whilst the entrance setup is similar to the old ring of honor setup with there being a screen behind them and a small steps from an elevated path that takes them that they walk to the ring in. The graphics going on around the place, the camera work and everything seems a lot more AEW-esque than it does Ring of Honor-esque. Yeah. Complete with them missing a couple of key moments in the match. <laughs> I thought were quite frustrating. Uh, still not there fully. Yeah. And prior to uh, the match starting, it's AEW-like promotion that the um, Ring of Honor commentators are doing. They're telling you what what the matches were on Dynamite that week. I thought that that might have been something that would be announced on Death Before Dishonor, that they have found themselves a TV deal and were going to start doing a weekly show themselves. And that hasn't happened yet, which is a bit frustrating because it does suggest that AEW is still going to have an excess of 
know, four Ring of Honor champions defending their belts and setting up storylines on their show. As well as just introducing two new titles themselves. And, as we say, FTR walking around with three different promotions, tag team titles, mm. none of which are AEW's. That's a whole other thing with like where Ring of Honor itself will sit. They obviously speak about through the match that the Briscoes are now signed with Khan under long-term Ring of Honor contracts. Which would also suggest that Ring of Honor's not going to be on a Warner's show if the rumours are true that Warner's are uncomfortable with the Briscoes being part of AEW television. Hence them never getting involved in an angle on AEW TV. Essentially the FDR having to build it up themselves with that promo of uh, Dax saying he's going to fight like an eight-year-old girl. Oh god, that promo was so, so... He is so... This is his time. He is so good. The thing about FTR, what I liked about the structure of this match is Cash got the hot tag because it has been... A a lot of chat has been Dax heavy recently and I do understand that. They had their uh, match against each other as part of the Owen Hart tournament. Dax's match against CM Punk. uh, His match against Adam Cole to nip back to the Owen Hart tournament. He has produced singles bangers this year. Which Cash hasn't. Yeah, he had a match against Will Ospreay that I think Meltzer gave four and three quarter stars. So we came very close to discussing a Dax Harwood singles match in this. Yeah. But I've never, I mean, I've always thought that Dash Wilder was the slightly superior in-ring performer just insofar as he has a, an athleticism that Dax is not able to match. And Dax's whole thing is that he has certain limitations physically, but he has a heart and a desire to do things. There are times with... Dex Harwood and how he talks and how he moves and how he presents himself that's almost Stone Cold Steve Austin-esque. It's like if Stone Cold Steve Austin hadn't been born with the genetics and actually was more of a family man and didn't have, instead of having a don't trust anyone attitude, he had a, well, trust a couple of people attitude. Yeah. Maybe he would have been a bit more like Dax Harwood mm. than <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin. But even in the cadence, the way that Harwood talks, I feel like He's modelled a lot of his promo work on Austin and Arn Anderson, or maybe he's modelled it on Arn Anderson, and because Austin, I think, is clearly inspired by Arn Anderson, that's what's yeah inspired him as well. So it's like mutual inspiration. Yeah, they're, they're coming from the same well, basically. There was a thing I do want to like discuss about like the starting section, because it's weird. They went for like one sort of sequence, uh, and then sort of awkwardly waited for the crowd to start chanting it seems, for like a split second. It wasn't quite as natural as the Shield Wyatt one. Not quite as natural. I don't think that's entirely fair. I think that part of that is because they were alerting everyone that the pace is going to be a lot slower this time. Mm. Because there's two out of three falls, it's like this idea that we can't finish this quickly, that there's no sudden death element to it. Yeah. There is room to recover, as it were. And there is even a re- recovery period between the falls. Mm. And also because, like you say, there is that mutual respect at this point, so it's less underhanded, although whilst it was the FTR that were working mostly as heels in the first match, yeah, it's the Briscoes that take the role of subtle heels in this one. And, and the ones who cheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cheating and being aggressive and having the most prolonged, isolated beatdown in the corner. Yeah as you said, that led to Dash Wilder getting the hot tag in, I believe it was the second four, wasn't it? Yeah. But because they're pacing it to go, I mean, it does go 45 minutes. 
they put it in place, so it's not a sprint, which the first one felt like. I mean, I can't even remember, but the first one I could have sworn didn't reach 25 minutes, or if it did, it was barely over 25 minutes. Mm. So they were going nearly double the length of time, and they were telling a story with chapters, so if you're going to ramp up to it, you can't go at that. I mean, some people probably can, but you can't go at that kind of pace yeah. and not exhaust your audience, especially if you're going to be the last match on the card as well, which is another great sign of... Um, respect to them that they had the main event the pay-per-view like i was wondering because the crowd is pretty quiet but i don't think that they're bored necessarily i think that they're engrossed but they're not doing stuff to like keep them on their feet and get them over excited and rally them i think one of the reasons why the crowd is like sort of like sitting in a quiet quiet awe to quote uh lisa simpson is that they generally don't know who's going to win i think they realized in the first one that FTR would win the titles and like be the belt collectors but this time round especially with how the first fall goes the crowd I, I think genuinely don't have in their head oh I know who's gonna get probably get this I don't think that's there yeah but that doesn't necessarily affect whether you're gonna be loud or quiet I think what's affecting them with being loud or quiet is maybe that there's no they don't mind either team winning yeah, also also a factor, yeah. Because there was, like, FTR Dem Boys chance, but it didn't even feel like... It might be because the crowd wasn't mic'd. It might be because only about half the crowd had picked one side or the other, mm. and the other half just wanted a good show. Because there was a sense of, well, maybe for Ring of Honor starting a new show, they want to take the FTR out of this yeah. and put them back in AEW, then it would, and it would make sense, you know, return the favour. And, as they were saying, that it's a two out of three falls match, and the whole storyline behind the briscoes i mean this is building to something that existed 15 years ago that was when the briscoes had the year in 2007 that was like their equivalent of the year ftr are having in 2022 where they were made like the one of the top acts in the whole promotion and they were having all these great main event tag team title defenses against steen and generico the no remorse core the motor city machine guns and they were often having two out of three falls matches, and the whole running concept was that the Briscoes were so good as a team, and they were so good at the two out of three falls format, that they would win all of their two out of three falls matches, except the last one of the year, mm. two straight. And that was against top teams. like That was against Austin Aries and Roderick Strong. That was against Kevin Steen and El Generico, even when they were having this big epic feud, when they did do the two out of three falls match, they still gave the Briscoes the two straight win. And I think that also adds more intrigue to a two out of three falls match, which can so often feel like padding until we get to the third fall. Sometimes you get two out of three falls matches where they just have them be the same length as a regular singles fall match and just the first and second falls drop very quickly. Yeah. WWE are quite guilty of it. I think one time I got shocked by it was an Usos versus Wyatt family match where they did a two straight. I can't remember what pay-per-view that was, but I, I remember at the time going, ah, oh, it's just going to be one, one, one. And it wasn't. I'm like, bloody hell. And like, it, because people will buy into like the formulas that are in wrestling. So for the Briscoes to have all the, against, like you say, elite level competition in their division, for them to just go against what some people will assume is the stereotypical formula for a two out of three fours match give them that like pedigree which means that even though FTR aren't quite as in a way 
aren't in a way territory as much. They sort of are because of the stipulation of the match. Even though it sounds on paper with FDR's like old school tag team wrestling vibes, something that they'd very much be down for two out of three falls. Well, I guess it's the idea of it's a definitive thing. You can't get a lucky pin. You can't yeah. get just one lucky pin and, and live by it. You've got to got to get it definitively on two separate occasions. You know, once can be lucky to, mm. you know, fool me once, etc. And all those other cliches. I don't know that the crowd bought that, though, because I don't know that the crowd knew about 2007 Ring of Honor as well as I did. <laughs> so I didn't get a sense that they bit at the near falls that the Briscoes had in the second fall as much as maybe they would have liked, ideally. True, and I must say, obviously, I was very well informed throughout this match by the commentary team, who did a very good job of explaining exactly who the Briscoes were. To a man like me in this position, I didn't watch 2007 Ring of Honor. I knew about it, but I didn't watch it. But the the lore and the records were very well conveyed by the commentary team, who I think did a really good job in this match. I think one of the other key parts that they wanted to establish at the start as well was that the FTR were going into this with maybe more of a sense of professionalism and trying to get a job done. Whereas mm. with the Briscoes, it was much more of an emotive thing because they'd lost this match, not only of titles, but of pride. It was the sense of it being an interpromotional match, a dream match, and a match that had had a lot of shit talking on social media and the like. And yeah. so they came in with a sense of not having been humiliated, but definitely bitter about it. And I think the key example that they establish of the two different attitudes of the teams going into this is early on when the Briscoes are very aggressive throughout the whole of the first fall of the match. And they're yeah. really taking it to FDR and FDR until Dash Wilder gets involved and really starts to take out both of them for a while as well. It almost feels like they've, they're overwhelming the FDR at the start because Dax keeps trying to get Jay down to the mat in a headlock takedown, and yeah. Jay keeps escaping until the point where he just flat out lifts him and drops him with a back suplex. Dax Harwood takes a roll out to the outside and the ringside doctor's there to look at him, and he does talk to the ringside doctor and get into it. And then Dash comes in and, like, okay, you, if that's how you're going to be, I'm going to be aggressive too. Hits Mark with a similar back suplex, and... Dax sprints across and knocks Jay off the ring apron or vice versa. And then, so Mark suffered the same hit that Dax had, but when the ringside doctor goes to them, they push him away and don't want him to look at them. So it's that sense of, Mm. that's not necessarily the sensible thing to do. If you're trying to pace yourself, think it through. It's more that the Briscoes, it's not that they've lost their heads, but if someone is going to keep their heads in this... It's, it's FTR. Yeah, and obviously, also with the Doctor looking at Dax, there is that jeopardy they're trying to put in with the torn labrum, which apparently he sustained at Forbidden Door, which just is further proof that that show was cursed. <laughs> but I, I guess there's an element of that. I, I don't, again, I don't know how much the crowd picked up on that, but it's immediately bought, made apparent by the commentary team of the jeopardy that he's under like he's not a hundred percent so even though they are seven star ftr even though they've smashed everyone in front of them and survived more a survival against the briscoes than like a smashing the first match they're not coming in completely healthy the whole thing is that they're on this run but they're the ultimate target on their backs whoever's going to get that win over ftr eventually it's going to be one hell of a big victory and 
we don't know yet who that team is going to be. Mm. I mean, if they're going to keep losing the belts piecemeal over time, then maybe it won't be one particular team that gets it for them. That's why everyone kind of assumed that surely you're going to do the winner-takes-all match with the Young Bucks because they're one apiece in their you know, their rivalry, and it could be a great way to have a, a pay-per-view main evented not by the world title match but by the tag team title match. And if yeah. any two teams deserve to main event pay-per-view, it was the Young Bucks and FTR. But, again, as we say, that wasn't the plan yet. Because you've got other promotions' titles, you don't know when they're going to call it in. So there's only so much they can build around it anyway. Yeah. I mean, you can be completely arrogant and make your own decisions, as Vince Russo did in TNA once, by having the British Invasion win the IWGP tag team titles from Team 3D, which New Japan had never sanctioned and refused to recognize for quite a while. Ooh, you don't mess with New Japan. <laughs> well, that's what Vince Russo did. He made Kazuchika Okada be, do a Kato from the Green Hornet gimmick. Yeah, that's so, why they were so reluctant for years to like send talent to American like, TV um, televised companies, at least. So yeah, you got the the whole thing about this is it's going through stages and chapters, really. I suppose. So you have the cagey start, you have the Briscoes establishing aggression, and then you have both teams trying to isolate, and they get a short burst of it. FTR able to isolate Jay briefly, and then the Briscoes in return are able to isolate dash briefly but both times they're able to get hot you know not hot tags but lukewarm tags yeah they're doing a house of fire on both sides again because whilst the briscoes are the heels they're not heel heels you know at least not yet they get increasingly frustrated as the match goes on do go to increasingly underhanded tactics and then because it's a two out of three falls match there's a thing that you could catch a quick fall somewhere and so you start getting quick pinning combinations for a while so that's a little chapter in itself Reminiscent of how Okada caught Kenny Omega with a cradle in their two out of three falls match at Dominion. Yes. But then in the end, Jay hits a slingshot on Dash, uh, Dax, sorry, where Dax hits the ring post. And it's that case of the Briscoes finding that opening and their love of the Doomsday device. And they hit it. Dax takes a scary looking bump. But it's a very hard move to bump off of. I think if I took a Doomsday device, I would always want to do it the boring flat back way. Yeah. Where... I think it's kind of. I think the Legion of Doom back in the day would ask someone how they wanted them to take it because animal can either hold onto your legs and fall down with you like an electric chair, which is how he has done stuff. I remember that's how he did it with the Steiner brothers. Or if you want to do the back somersault and land on your knees or your legs or your feet, even then he'll put you off as well. He'll push your legs up in the air whilst you're doing it. He'll act as a platform for you. Mm, mm. And that was what Dax went for. Maybe he regretted that decision in hindsight. But, I mean, the Briscoes Doomsday Device, their most famous version of that, because it would be a springboard, because Mark would springboard into it. I don't think they do it that way anymore. I think Mark just jumps off the top rope like the traditional way. Mm. The most famous one of that was in a match in 2007, their year, against the Kevin Steen and El Generico. Where Is that the, the one through match. the ladder? Yeah, he dives through the ladder and hits the clothesline. Yeah, it. yeah. Mark Briscoe's an incredible athlete. He's insane. I guess he's like the Nick of the uh, Briscoe's team and the Ray Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Although he's got he's got a weird like sort of charisma about him. One of oh, yeah. the pre-match promos I watch for this, the Briscoe's in there, uh, training compound, and Jay's is like going off. Like going, oh yeah, well we're going to run it back. We're going to run it back, and just halfway through, Mark just makes himself some chocolate milk, 
Uh, <laughs> and it's a great way of conveying that this man is dangerous because he's so calm now. He's doing like he, he's hyping up like this match where he's getting all like he's lost all his pride. And yeah, his brother's the mouthpiece, but yeah, like one of the most important moments in his career potentially. I'm just gonna have some chocolate milk. So the second fall is all about building up sympathy for FTR because they're now finally the team to beat. They're the ones in the underdog status. They're the ones that have to fight from underneath because they've got to now get two straight falls to win this. Mm. And I assume this was a bit of luck, but Dax has history of this, of bleeding in unusual places. Yeah. Because they hit him with so many chops that he genuinely starts to bleed from the chest. Not even like heavy bruising, which is what you usually see, like, with someone from... I guess Ilya Druganov, you see some burst blood vessels, but you know what I mean? It's never, like, flat-out blood seems to be not pouring, but at least leaking. Because I remember when they did do that first match against the Young Bucks, he got, like, a cut on his hand. He got a nasty cut on his hand. Which they built up throughout the match, and it was, like, him losing a weapon. Yeah. Which made me wonder, did he deliberately blade his hand? No, I think... I think that was an accident because he it, he was properly injured for a bit afterwards. They just improvised. That wasn't planned, to my knowledge. But yeah, this is the sustained period of beating. And what I like as well is that they knocked that Mark knocks Dash off the ring apron, and so Dax is building a comeback, and then he gets himself into a position where he can tag out, and Dash isn't there. And again, phenomenal body language and facial expressions from him. Just in that moment. It's how he turns and it's just like, oh, Christ, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> so then he has to hit the top rope superplex himself. So he's already hurt and he's having to take extra damage just in order to hurt Jay. And then gets hit with a redneck boogie. Yeah. Which is a razor's edge neck breaker. And there's some big moves that get kicked out of in this match. I'll say that. Well, for the most part, it's not kickouts, it's interruptions. There are some big kickouts. There are some at the tail end, you're right. But for the most part, they protect their finishes. What I like as well, you know, they always say that the FTR are so much tribute acts. They do a really good one with the hot tag where so often the hot tag is usually you build it up and build it up and tease it. And they've been doing that. And then suddenly one time, finally, they're able to crawl to the corner and get the tag. But what's even better is when they just the the opponent makes a fatal error or just there's an opening that they find that you don't expect from anywhere. Very often when Ricky Morton does it, he'll just suddenly do a shoulder roll and suddenly find himself in his corner and be able to hit the tag. Brett yep. was great at doing that, unsurprisingly, in the Heart Foundation. I remember one match where like he's given an inverted atomic drop and the bump he takes from it, he falls so far back that he's in reaching distance and is able to tag. So, the, you know, he gets hit with a move, but it's enough. And with this one, it's just Mark runs him against the ropes and Dax is able to do a drop down and realises that he's in falling distance of a tag and so he's able to tag Dash in. Yeah. And Dash just hits so many cool moves. He's got his fantastic brain buster. Oh, God, yeah. He's able to keep both the Briscoes at bay and then gory special whilst Dax is holding onto Jay's boots and... Uh, yeah, it's just a, and then we go into the all-out brawl. And what I really love here is you get a really good example of that thing we always used to mention, especially in all those NXT epics, the Chekhov's gun. But you didn't realize it was a Chekhov's gun. Where the brawling's going so wild, Jay and Dax have gone to the into the crowd and they're fighting in the crowd. Yeah, 
and Dash seems to be looking for something, and he's moving the table into an awkward, into an angled position, but he can't find it, and then they end up brawling on the ringside, and then Jay's around, and Dax and, and Dax obviously got taken out, and that gave them the opportunity to try and get him, and they go for um, right, Jay hits him with the ring bell. He goes to reach out to swipe at Jay after he's knocked down Mark, and Jay just clobbers him. So it almost feels like a mistake has been made and something was forgotten or something was lost because the table stays there. And I think it's a pretty much a replay of what Shawn Michaels and Mick Foley did in their mind games match where a table was put into a mm. position like 10 minutes into the match and then at the 25th minute of the match, that's when they do the table spot. So they're setting this up early, in, you know, midway through the second fall. And the payoff comes right at the end of the third fall. But it's enough that you're like, oh, shit, yeah, that table was there. Yeah, yeah. It's because that by, by that point, we are in um, desperation mode. So there's no pregnant oh, wobble on the turnbuckle or anything like that, which, naming no names, but certain companies uh, seem to love doing. Well, yeah. Or seemed to love doing. You milk it. You tease it. Whereas with this, they make it look as innocuous as it can, a table being repositioned and it getting paid off later on. And that's the best thing in films, TV, anything. If they establish something and you do know it, but you forget that you know it. Mm. And then the moment when you realise what it is that they've done, and that's it. I mean, Breaking Bad was amazing at doing that sometimes. All I'll say is uh, White of the Lily or something along those lines. Yeah. I I do love how the, both teams do things and there's communication and there's thought behind it and there's also strategy. Like Dax sort of moves away from Mark, makes Mark follow him just to the point that he's by the ring steps and then he catches him in a flapjack, knocking him into the ring steps. Yeah. And that sets up the second fall, doesn't it? Because they've decommissioned Mark and then smash out the big ring. They do the blind tag and it's a perfectly done blind tag. Because I know that sometimes Jim Cornette gets driven crazy by the blind tag being where you tag them, you slap them on the back and there's that real dispute over what is a tag and what isn't a tag. Yeah. Because I remember them saying that back in the early 90s that like, oh, you can slap someone on the back and it counts as a tag. And Jim Cornette, you know, to this day is like, no, no, no. The tag is a <laughs> palm onto a palm. And they do it like that. And I do like how it's just that Jay doesn't know where they are exactly. They hit the big rig. They get the three counts at almost precisely the 30-minute mark as well. Yeah. The positioning as well, like how quickly they snap into position, it's exactly like how the first fall happened. It's a mirror image because the moment they realised they had Dax on a turnbuckle, like bang, doomsday device, no no second fall. They, They just go for it. Say exactly the same. So it's like for like. There's symmetry to it. So if the first fall is all built around the Briscoes being aggressive and really wanting to get their revenge and also feel like it's their turf, their territory, their type of match, and it paying off for them. And then the second fall is all about FTR fighting from underneath and trying to will themselves to get back into the match. The third fall is all about just the massive amount of exhaustion that they've both got at this time. But it yeah. going, it still goes another 15 minutes, which mm. is, again, like, a large chunk of what the first match's entire running time was. But everyone's exhausted going into this. Like, Mark is ble- Like, only Jay isn't bleeding at this point. Yeah. Was Jay the only one that bled in the first match? I can't remember. Pass. Mm. But that would be... A, if that was the case, that'd be a fun little... Yeah. Bit of a... Not symmetry. Or whatever. But you know what I mean. A nice touch. 
But it's like everyone's getting big moments and everyone's like squaring off to each other, Dash and Mark staff with literal headbutts, which I'm never a huge fan of, but it's more just they're kind of sucking each other out. And, you know, forearm exchanges can go wrong very often or just go cliche and dull and, you know, milked. And... Oh, be, be too long. I think they do it well here. It Like, they're engaging, they're both tired, but they're going for it and it changes up. It's forearms, it slaps, it's chops. Then they both go to the outside and then Mark and Dax get into a, a punch-up later. And it's just a punch-up. Like, they're covering yeah. up and just going at it. There's no waiting for the other one to hit a forearm or whatever. Someone sh- uh, one of the commentators says it's like it's a hockey brawl. And it very much is the hockey brawl style. It, or, obviously, the Pete Dunn-Tyler uh, Bates exchanges from back in the day. Yeah. Back in the NXT Chicago show. Although, I think they did it as well, if not better, in this match. Because it was a little bit more... Whereas this, you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this had ruggedness yeah to it. maybe it maybe his age yeah. and experience gives it that at sense and size but yeah just everything's a struggle for every every move and you know also there's a little bit of all japan you know fighting for moves and going for things and like hitting the big move and the briscoes just constantly trying to go back to the doomsday device yeah. Numerous times, it's just that sense of this is what's going to win it for us is the doomsday. No, and it worked. It, well, that's yeah. how we got four one. Yeah, yeah. But it got to the point where it almost felt like they were running the same spot again because it seemed to happen. It was like they did it. There's, a, then, there's four attempts, yeah. some of which was successful. But like the way that Cash and Dax cut them off was like the same as the second and third times. Yeah. But the in between point was probably the worst looking spot in the match which was Jay Briscoe's missed punch that somehow ended up hitting Paul Turner. No, I, well, I don't think that's the worst spot in the match. That For me, that comes later. If you mean the suplex spot, I actually thought it kind of worked how it didn't work. Yeah, I, I think they got away with it. <laughs> well, yeah, but I don't think they got away with that because the trajectory of Jay's punch was not going that way. I think Paul Turner was out of position, to be honest. I didn't catch that. The way I caught it, he ran straight into Paul Turner. And I, I thought it was like a headbutt or something. On, on, on the glance, when I glanced at it, I mean, I didn't get a replay of it. I didn't rewind it back. So I'll have to go back and like look at that spot. I guess I'll... I was not convinced by it. Also, maybe it was Dax that hit him, and it was Jay the Ducks. I don't know. Yeah, but whoever it was that hit him, it didn't work for me. That it's spot Dax. At all. It's Dax that ducks. I'm sure it is. Dax ducks. Da- Jay jabs. Dax yeah. ducks. Jay jab. <laughs> And Jay hits the Jay driller, and there's no referee, and he gets the visual pin. Yes. But it, and so that's kind of like that. At that point, I think you watch that and go, well, that would suggest that the Briscoes are probably going to win this, but that's the way that you keep the Briscoes looking strong. Mm. Except five minutes later in the match, Jay hits the Jay driller again on Dax again. The ref's there this time, and he just gets a two count. That was the big kick out that was maybe a step too far. But he, but he had been big rigged again at this point. Who had? Jay. Didn't Jay hit get uh, the second big rig, or was that Mark who received it? Yes, Jay, Jay does it, because it, and they, but it's a different version of it as well, actually, that it's a a makeshift uh, big rig where he jump, he jumps onto the second rope, turns around for a crossbody, and they turn it mid-air into a big rig. Yeah. But because... there's still a delay there, because Dash has to go out and get the ref in. Yeah. So in theory, they've got the visual three counts as well. Well, this, is, this is the bit where I was talking about like finisher protection. Because they have the visual free that that was a free to to everyone's eyes, but to the referees, 
And because the referee takes so long getting in, it gives the kick out. So the Briscoes get to be... Jay gets to be, or whichever Briscoe it is, gets to be the guy who kicks out of the big ring. Is he the first one to kick out of that move? He's the first one... It's the first one to kick out of the big rig, specifically. Okay. They go over the powerplex. Max pushes Cash off, setting them up for the Doomsday device again. And Dash is able to break it up. There never seemed to be amazing last-second cut-off that, like, comes from nowhere. Which is, I think, partly because it feels like a large amount of this match was filmed from the uh, hard cam. More so than usual, it seemed. So you yeah. were just getting the full view of the ring, and so, you know... The best filmed cutoffs are the ones where someone comes in from behind the cameraman the last possible second. So, or, for, or they've been selling and immediately come up from immediately under the apron. I don't recall any cutoff in this match being like a edge of your seat. I did not see that coming moments. Mm. So then we get the the suplex spots. I thought it worked weirdly in its failure because it's obvious that he suplexed him a bit too far away from the ropes. Yeah. So that didn't give Mark enough uh, of his body over that when his back hit the rope, he could just fall on. Because obviously that's a repeat of the big spot. That's like their version of the big spot from the previous show, which was easier for them to do because Jay was literally on the apron already, wasn't he, when he suplexed him outside? Yeah. Whereas they were going for sort of the Bret Hart version where they're both in the ring to begin with and then it... You know, it's a more difficult one to do. Even Seth Rollins has screwed that move up. So, And because they didn't... It wasn't an awkward kind of, oh, let's try this again spot, which was what confused me about that Doomsday Device thing, that it seemed like everyone got lost for a second there or something. It just looked awkward, that one. Whereas that one, whilst you knew what they were going for, it, it kind of worked within the sense of Dash was looking for something... They're knackered, and it's still bloody hurt, and it hurt both of them, and they both end up going on the outside logically anyway because of what happened. And that's at the 40-minute mark. That's when we get the bare-knuckle brawl. Jay hits a boot, Dax follows with a clothesline, and I like that it's almost their version of the Takeshita-Eddie Kingston finish, where Dax falls on top of him, but Jay actually has enough within him to turn it into a crucifix as well. And then we get the double submission spots... And that was reminiscent of the, obviously, the revival DIY spots, except this time you were rooting mm. for them where they're holding hands, stop the other one tapping. And this time they don't tap. Yeah, the problem with that is it didn't feel like Dash was doing anything that helped Dax actually get out of the hold itself. It would have been good if they sort of found some way as a team to break up the hold from that position. You know, like how Bret Hart's able to find a way out of the sharpshooter. Mm. If there was some way through their double teaming in the position to have broken up whatever hold that they had, that would have been a more fun spot, I think. Yeah, I get where you're coming from there. They just keep going for the doomsday device. So it's kind of like that sense of Dash is like, I'm going to have to sacrifice myself. We've got nothing left. They seem to have the one up on us as a team. But if I take Mark out, and even if it means me going out, I'm going to trust Dax finding something within him to win the match. Mm. We're not going to lose because the team out-teamed us. Yeah. We'll take out the team element to it, and it's down to one-on-one, which was how Matt beat Dash in their first match, you know? Where Dash makes the mistake with the 450. Yeah, that and Dash is... um, uh, Sorry, Cash is... um immediate rush of blood to the head. So Jay does hit the Jay Driller, and that's where you get the ref kicking out and somewhat 
undermines the visual pin that they had earlier. Mm. You could kind of get away with it because more has happened. But I, I, I know what you're saying. I, I do, but you, it's sort of a sway. But if more has happened, then more's been taken out of you, and therefore you should be more susceptible to losing to that. But you know. But on the other hand, your opponent will have less stank on it when he does it. it, it it's it's apples and oranges. Yeah. And then we get the killer finish. Risky move. He's been done in the past. Rhino used to do it a lot in ECW, which is he's got him in the corner. Jay pushes him off, but Dax is relentless. Gets up there, catches him, pile driver off the middle rope. He rolls him over almost Styles Clash-like in a way. And all he's yeah. got are his legs on top of him. And his bum on top of his head. <laughs> it's like as close as a, a non-pin as you can get almost. And that's enough for the three counts at the 45-minute mark. So, it, like I said, it was a different thing. It was going for a different thing. I think there will be people that will argue for it being better. I am not one of them. I liked it a lot. Okay. But I did feel like my attention wasn't taken as much. I guess I just preferred the intensity of the other one. It was almost like it was more of um, an intellectual exercise or like like a challenge. Uh, there's justification in going longer and everything, but, you know, going too long has been a bugbear of a lot of wrestling. This isn't as egregious. Yeah. But I think because they're spacing more out and the crowd is not as rabid for this anymore because it's not the dream match. It's not something they've seen before. And I think they were maybe expecting a repeat of that first match and because they didn't get that. And because it was going longer, so you couldn't go at that intensity as a crowd either. It's maybe more nutritionally enriching match. But, you know, I'm, I'm a fast food guy, unfortunately. And I guess, you know, hook the pure beef to my veins of the Super Card of Honor match rather than the uh, three-course meal that is this one at a, at a Michelin-starred restaurant. That's not to say I didn't think it was an excellent match. I think I liked it a lot more than some other people. Like a mate of mine who gave the first match five stars uh, gave this match three and three quarters. I would go above that. I would go mm. four and a quarter to maybe four and a half on a second viewing. Uh, the moment, that's where I'm standing. Okay. Well, for me... It's a case of get out your fancy knives and fancy forks and start eating. Is it outwards, inwards, or outwards? outwards? I, 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 I think it is. Yeah, because I I loved it. I loved this match a lot, even with its flaws. The flaws, the thing about the flaws is the flaws weren't jarring. Flaws is harsh. Maybe the um, choices made foibles. Foibles against just failings. I think they made the match that they intended to make. It's just maybe not the match that everyone wanted or maybe expected. Yeah. They were going for a different... They were challenging themselves differently. They were trying to tell a different story within a different framework. Yeah. And have it be, you know, have that be as good a two out of three falls epic of tag team wrestling as the first one was a brutal, you know, sprint, knockdown, drag out, mm. brawl of intensity. Yeah, but no, for me personally, I, I think everything it set out to do, it did do. And it had like a, that rugged edge to it. And it it, caught, it harked back within the match itself. It conveyed exactly who they are. I, I think it did everything a wrestling match should do. And it was bloody good at it as well. I'm going five stars. Okay, did you go five stars for the first one as well? I cannot honestly remember. I, I think I did. Because I went four and three quarters, I think, for the last one. Mm. But I think it might still be my match of the year so far. 
Because I did, I was surprised that this got five stars just because Meltzer made it clear that he didn't think it was as good as the first one. That's not to say two matches from the same people with different levels of quality, like a better match, pretty much by unanimous consent, can't still produce two matches that you would give five stars to. Obviously, he gave like mm. several Flair Steamboat matches, several Omega Okada matches. Well, let's not go into that. But I mean, so on like a personal level. I would give both Bret Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin at the 1996 Survivor Series five stars and WrestleMania 13 five stars. And they were two very different matches. Yeah. And, you know, and it's also because I'm not going to go anywhere higher than five stars. Whereas, you know, Austin Bret at Survivor Series is like a match of the year candidates. WrestleMania 13 is like a match of the decade, maybe best match of all time candidates. Mm. But I mm. still think that they both warrant a five star rating. It's a four and a quarter that's close to four and a half than it is a four, if that means anything. Which it doesn't. But there I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying, though. I'm interested that you went five stars. That's your choice? Yeah, I stand by it. Where do you want both these teams to go? Because whilst the Briscoes did shake hands, there was that sense of we're not. this isn't going to be a mutual appreciation society thing. Yeah. After Dash shakes, after Cash shakes... Mark's hand, he like raises his hand, and it's kind of like Mark's like affronted by that. So, do they go heel? Mm. Uh. I do think that they're the team that end up taking the belts off the FTR, or at some point, the Briscoes will be given a win back over the FTR. I hope they don't go Iron Man to justify it going even longer. I would rather they won, mm. I don't know, just a straight out. I think they step away from each other for a while. Yeah, the yeah. The trouble yeah. I've got is my lack of knowledge of other Ring of Honor tag teams. So I don't know. I couldn't say... I couldn't plot plot the Briscoes' path as much as I could plot FDR's path. Uh, It was Dax who recently tweeted the the rankings and pointed out that they are in line for Swerving Our Glory if if you look at the rankings. So maybe they bring FDR towards the AW titles. So obviously they're teasing at the end of the show... Claudio and Wheelie Yuta having a run at them in a Champions Challenge, which I think is a regular Ring of Honor f- feature. Um, I mean, I would love, personally, if he were to come back. I don't know if he's back to wrestling. He was taking some time off, but a Kings of Wrestling reunion could be very exciting if they wanted to go down that route in Ring of Honor. Yeah, they could do that. FTR against Kings of Wrestling would be very exciting. I assume they're going to keep them as Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions until Ring of Honor's on regular TV. Yeah. And then you make the de- like you make the decision at that point as to who you're going to build it around. Because you're saying you don't know who the tag teams are in Ring of Honor. They don't yet know who the tag teams are in Ring of Honor. We've, we've definitely had chats. I can't remember if they're part of a podcast or aside from the podcast of who would go on, who would be sent to Ring of Honor from the AW roster. We, we have drawn up that war board already. Not literally, at least and not it, in my case. No, but yeah. Simon has so many draw boards up and around with all sorts of different things linked to all sorts of different things. <laughs> you think Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is a bit much. You know what I love about that Pepe Silvia thing? They never explain what it was, but I do love someone online. I just read someone online's theory was Pepe Silvia because Charlie's the whole thing is that he's dyslexic. It's Pennsylvania. Ah. Uh... It's got to be. Ah, oh. We're through the looking glass here, people. <laughs> Alright, Melabs. And because we're through the looking glass, it's time for us to go on to journey into places new. 
and venture forth into different discussions and podcasts. We've had our time with FTR and the Briscoes. Will we be back with them again sometime in the future? Maybe even this year? Remains to be seen. But what doesn't remain to be seen is how people can get in touch with you, Simon, to give you recommendations, suggestions, conspiracy theories, places to get good cork boards and pin <clears throat> strings. Twine. Yeah. Twine is the key of it all. Mm-hmm. How can they do so? Uh, people can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm sending this Simon Cross free. Free for the number of rooms in my house dedicated to the storage of twine. <laughs> My name is Lorcan Munnell, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A, that's the middle of J, N for the N, that's the middle of Honour. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox, if you're putting out gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod at gmail.com, lmtwisepod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. For the next episode, we're back to Let Me Tell You Something, assuming there are no more five-star matches in between, and we will be talking about Ringside Accomplices. FTR used to have one in Tully Blanchard, and they don't anymore. Will there be more in the future? That remains to be seen. What's in store? But until then, there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. I love what you went to. Where you stop? Keeping it simple. 